Good evening, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to the Princess Bride class. Class, <clears throat> I think this is class 11, if, I get, if, I, if I'm right about that, in uh, Mythgard Academy history. We're here to talk about the Princess Bride. Uh, 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 concerning which, I am very excited. Uh, we're This is going to be a sort of a shorter class than some of the other ones that we've done. Um, but, uh, uh, but it's still going to be fun. Before we start, though, I have a couple announcements uh, that I wanted to make sure. A couple uh, uh, upcoming things. One very soon. One slightly less soon, but still soon. Uh, that I wanted to make sure to tell you guys about first. Uh, this Friday, I am starting a fun new multimedia Tolkien series, uh, which you are welcome to join. Uh, I'm going to be doing a live stream of the Lord of the Rings Online video game and doing a discussion, uh, uh, sort of a, com a combined discussion of the Lord of the Rings adaptation of Tolkien, as well as doing kind of a rambling discussion of themes within Tolkien as they come up within the game. Um, so uh, it should be a lot of fun. I'm, I'm going to be doing some open Q&A from the live audience uh, uh, during the stream. Um, so it's going to be fun. You'll see, you know, I'll have a, I'll have a webcam feed like this, but you'll also see, um, uh, see my, my, my gameplay screen. So you'll actually be able to, to see as I go across, I'll be in the Shire. I'm going to be, uh, playing a Hobbit, uh, in this, uh, in this stream. Uh, and all you have to do is just go to the website, which is, uh, Twitch, T-W-I-T-H, twitch.tv slash Lotro stream, L-O-T-R-O stream one word twitch.tv slash lotro stream this is the official uh, uh stream uh, channel uh, twitch channel of uh turbine uh the uh company that does lord of the rings online so this uh this show that i'm gonna be doing is uh done in partnership between mythgard and turbine so um it should be a lot of fun i'm really looking forward to this i've been playing lord of the rings online now since august i've been sort of exploring it really fascinating to think about as an adaptation of Tolkien. Really, it's rapidly become my favorite adaptation. Um, and I think that's fair to say, my favorite adaptation of Tolkien in any genre. Um, it's so thoughtful and so rich and really interesting. Um, so if you've never seen The Lord of the Rings online before, if you've never actually played the game, this is a really cool chance to be able to see it, to kind of see some of the things that they do, uh, think about the way that they're adapting Tolkien and the way that they've related themselves to the books and uh, you know how their story works. My focus is going to be not on the game-playing elements. You're not going to pick up I doubt highly you're going to pick up any like awesome gaming tips from me in watching this the, the this stream. But what what we will be doing is looking at the stories. Um, it's again, it's one of the things that makes Lotro a, a pretty unusual um, MMO. Uh, uh, Multi, uh, massively multiplayer online game, uh, is that they they have um, a, a, a very strong story element. They have the you know this uh, epic quest series where the player characters follow along the main plot uh, of the Lord of the Rings, um, and in in what I think are some really interesting ways. Um, so we're gonna be we're gonna be looking at that. Uh, I, I'm, I'm gonna be sort of following that as it goes through the game. Uh, and anyway, it should be a lot of fun. So if you've never seen Lotro before, it's a really cool uh, way. You don't have to get into it. You don't have to download it or play it yourself. Um, though, I, you know, I would encourage you to do that if you're interested, because uh, you can do that for free, and it's really neat to, to see. 
Um, but anyway, you you can get a cool look at it, and you know you can ask questions, and we can uh, we can do a lot of really fun talking discussion. Now, if you do happen to be a Lotro veteran, of course, you're going to be familiar with all the things that I'm showing, most likely. But uh, hopefully, you'll enjoy a good meaty lore discussion, and you know might have some other questions and things that you might be interested to talk about about the way, the things that uh, uh, that that Lotro has done with Tolkien stuff. The time of this is going to be. So it's going to start on Friday, day after tomorrow, um, at 12.30 p.m. in the afternoon. So at 12.30 in the afternoon um, is when the live stream will be. The stream will be recorded, and we're going to be posting it to the Mythgard YouTube channel. So you'll be able to see the video after the fact as well. The, the, live, um, um, the live show will be Friday at 12.30 p.m. And this is going to be a weekly show. Uh, every Friday at 12.30 p.m. Uh, I'll be doing this, uh, this stream as I take my new Hobbit character, which I'll be creating in the first episode on Friday, uh, through the Lotro Epic Quest Live. It's going to be it's it's going to be a lot of fun. So that's the first thing. This new partnership uh, between Mythgard and Turbine that we're really excited about, and uh, you know, I encourage you to tune into that. The second thing that's coming up is the Silm Film Project. Uh, many people have been asking about this. Um, it is actually coming and uh, we're hoping to launch that very soon uh we have the whole first year or so planned we've got all you know we we're 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 almost all ready um the thing that's holding us up is that we want to make sure to have everything built in place let me explain what i mean by that briefly um as you know, if you've heard me talk about the Silm Film Project before, you know that one of the things that I really am hoping for with this is for it to be a real collaborative community project. Um, you know, not just me or me and Trish and Dave rambling, you know, <laughs> every other week. Um, there will be some of that, no doubt. But um, but that's not the, that's not the you know, I, I don't want it to be just that. I really want this to be something that we're all really kind of able to chip in and work on together. Um, and so we have been sort of doing a little bit more work in advance uh, to set up a structure. We're creating a new, uh, a new uh, forum structure um, that everybody can... Uh, to, to make sure that we have a sufficiently robust area on our webpage for people to be discussing, collaborating, posting their own materials and stuff like that. So um, anyway, I'm, I'm, we wanted to make sure we have all that stuff in place so that we're fully ready to go before we launch. But we're getting there now, so we're hoping to be able to launch uh, very soon. And I'm not ready to release an exact date yet because I can't confirm. I don't want to promise something that doesn't happen. Uh, but it's but it's but it's it's coming very soon now. We're almost prepared. So, um, so I definitely will keep you guys posted uh, as that moves on. Maybe I'll even have a date for you next week. We'll see. Um, okay, those are my two announcements for the exciting new things that are coming up very soon. Um, this class, of course, is also an exciting new thing. Um, this class is going to be five sessions long. We're going to do three sessions on the book and two on the film. Now, since this is a shorter class, of course, what this means is we're going to be doing an election soon. So uh, stay tuned. Uh, you know, those of you who uh, are Mythgard supporters who, <clears throat> who uh, you know, have supported us either during our last campaign or since then, um, will be in touch to, to, uh, to get your input on what books we should do next. I think we're going to do another two-book election uh, for this next cycle so that we can have the next two books lined up. Um, 
which should probably take us through the summer, I think, unless we happen to get two short ones. Um, but anyway, so I said that will be coming up uh, relatively soon as well. Um, now, before I start discussion of the book of of Princess Bride by William Goldman, I want to uh, I want to do a poll. I have I have I've actually prepared a poll. This is a little unusual, um, but I wanted to I wanted to see what you guys thought here before I start my discussion. So I have a few questions for you. Question one. Concerning The Princess Bride, which do you think is better, the book or the film? Now, I know that's a vague question. You can define better in lots of different ways. Uh, 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 I don't care. (laughs) Answer. What do you think? Um... What do you think? How, however, you define it. This is not, uh, you know, this is not, this is not binding. You know, this is not, uh, you know, this is totally anonymous. I'm just uh, interested to see where you guys stand on this. So go ahead and vote now. Submit your votes. Votes are coming in. Yes, I know if you've, like, uh, you know, Philip Lord is saying he's only read the first three chapters, which, of course, which you're supposed to have read for today. Um, that's, uh, that's, that's, uh, yeah, that's okay. That's, I mean, try to judge from what you have. I know, I know it's difficult, which you've, and, and, uh, Portugaco hasn't seen the film at all. Um, uh, in which case, you know, y- y- it's okay, Takako, you can abstain. It's totally fine. Um, <laughs> Kate Neville says her vote was only mostly cast. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Um, okay, all right. All right, I'm closing the poll. Results are... Okay, so we have 58% prefer the film. Okay, okay. Now that's by itself a little bit interesting, I think. I mean... Uh, when asking a, a panel of uh, uh, when asking a panel of book people whether they like the book or the film version of something better, um, it's pretty unusual to get a majority choosing the film over the book. I think um, I, I, it doesn't usually happen. Um, but uh, anyway, okay. My second question: How do you feel about the book? You love it, like it, dislike it, can't bear it. What do you say? Now, I understand that it's somewhat unlikely that somebody who absolutely detests the book would show up for the class, (laughs) right? So I realize there's a bit of a selection bias at play uh, uh, here, but I'm just, I'm just... I'm just curious. One of the things that I don't really know, for instance, I mean, I'll explain a little bit about the reason why I'm asking these questions. And uh, one of the reasons I'm asking these questions is that I'm not really sure. This I find this this work peculiar. Um, peculiar in how... Let's see, here we go. Here are our results, by the way. Um, everyone who voted either likes it or loves it. And of those who voted, two-thirds like it and one-third love it. Okay. Um, 
And again, I, I find this, this sort of the status of this work to be a little bit unusual um, in that it's a story that uh, you know, almost everyone is familiar with, but a lot of people um, are more familiar with the film than the book. It's a story which I know is sort of very dear and beloved to a lot of people. What I'm curious about, though, is how many people, for, for how many people is the book in that position? Uh, versus how many people um, f- f- find the film occupying that position, which is my next question. Same question. How do you feel about the film? Okay. Hmm, that's very interesting. 81% love the film, versus only 14% who like it, so two-thirds liked the book and one-third loved it, whereas 81% love the film and only 14 like it. We do, however, get a single vote for each disliking it and not being able to bear it, um, where we had ne- no negative votes uh, for the book. So that's, that, that's I find that very interesting. Okay, um... Thank you. Thank you. Um, that's, uh, uh, that's interesting, uh, uh, to, that, it's interesting to me. Arthur Harrow asks an excellent question. He says, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I try to convince everybody to judge the Tolkien films, you know, as films rather than as versions of the books. Um, why the difference here? Well, Arthur, right now I'm primarily trying to, well, there, there are two answers to that question. One is, um, I am. I'm just trying to figure out sort of where everyone stands at the beginning. I mean, I will tell you myself. I come to this with very much more familiarity with the with the movie than the book. Um, I saw the movie first. Uh, I had probably seen the movie fifty times before I read the book, but it was a long time ago that I read the book, um, and. I uh, I love the film, obviously, and um, I mean obviously because I said I watched it fifty times, which is unusual if you don't like a movie. And um, I and I um, I said I did read the book. I think I finished it, but I'm not a hundred percent sure that I did actually when I first read it. Um, and it was and I never came back to it. It's been a really long time. Um, by which you can tell that I didn't love the book when I first read it, um, in the same way that I loved the movie, um, and. From my uh, just sort of small number of conversations I've had with some people, it seems that there there are many people in a sort of a similar position that they they knew the movie first, they sort of knew and liked or knew and loved the movie first, and then uh, read the book. Um, and so, Arthur, that's one of the reasons why I'm 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 sort of trying to establish this. I'm just interested to see, having you know, gotten a bunch of you in one place here, uh, just to try to see among you. Not that you're a statistically significant sample of, you know, the uh, the movie going and book reading public, but nevertheless, uh, just to sort of see where things fall and how, um, how what your experience is with this and sort of where you're coming at this from. Um, anyway, that's that's why I'm. Uh, I'm I'm asking about that. Um, 
Yeah, Sarah Powell says uh, it's difficult to di- to you know, separate her reading experience from the film because the book is undeniably populated by the actors from the film. It's true. It is another... Um, it, and as as a couple of you have pointed out, of course, one other factor uh, which changes, and I think I said there were two factors, and I never talked about the second one, and, and, and this is it, that the two of them are so closely related that the same person wrote them both. Um, you know, we're not talking about, you know, as we were in Riddles in the Dark, you know, what are Peter Jackson and Philippa Boyens and Fran Walsh going to do with Tolkien, um, you know, as they're, as they're writing the screenplay um, of the films. Um, it's not to say that nothing is done to the book, right? There's still adaptation that has to be done, even if it's the author of the book who's doing the adaptation, and yet it's a pretty different kind of situation, obviously. Um, so, uh, anyway, I, uh, I, it certainly is another thing that really kind of links them much more closely together um, uh, in my mind. But, um, and just to clarify, Rachel, because uh, this I know can be confusing, the book did in fact come before the film. The book was written in, uh, what, 73, I want to say, um, and the movie didn't come until, uh, until the mid-80s. Um, so the, the book is more than 10 years older than the film. Um, and so the author did write it as a novel. And then he adapted it for screenplay. He was himself a screenwriter. I mean, he wrote some novels, but the majority of what Goldman has done uh, has been has been screenwriting. Um, so he, uh, um, he 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 definitely. Again, it's not just that he was involved in both. It's 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 what it's what he did. I mean, he he th- those were the two things that he did, novel writing and screenplay writing. Um and he he did both of those. But the book did did definitely uh did definitely come first. Okay. I am going to attempt, you know, Sarah Powell, this comes back to the point that you were making just a minute ago. I'm going to attempt as we talk about the book not to talk about the film. Um I am going to try as hard as I can uh not to be you know, continually comparing or to be using the film as a as a as a, a sort of a, a frame of reference, because again, this is where I find it difficult because I do know the film so much better, and and <clears throat> it has, you know, to to me, when somebody says the Princess Bride, I'm I'm thinking of the film um, first and second and third and the book, not maybe fourth. Um, it's just. That's to, I, this is the way that I think about the story. It's the way that I experience the story. Um, so I'm going to be working hard to focus only on the book and be discussing what is this thing that Goldman has written and then to compare and look at the adaptation uh, later on. So we're going to take... I said we're, we're going to take it, you know, perhaps you might call it self-indulgence on my part. I'm going to argue that it isn't. Um, that I'm, I've scheduled two class sessions for the film at the end, when I've only scheduled three for the book. Um, but I think it's justified, actually. And in a, in a way, because of the intimate relationship between the book and the film, um, <clears throat> that seems to me to justify... Um, really taking some time to put them side by side, which is what we're going to be doing um, in the last two classes, uh, class sessions. So anyway, we're, um, uh, but now, for the rest of tonight and for the next two, uh, for the next two weeks, we're just going to talk about the book. 
and I'm not going to talk about, I'm going to attempt not to think about the film. Okay, all right. I want to start off with the frame. Of course, this is a somewhat complicated piece of fiction, right? Um, and first, I, I would like to emphasize, and a couple of you earlier on in the comments were um, uh, sort of attesting to the fact that uh, at first, when they first, especially if you read the book when you were younger, uh, you might have actually been taken in uh, by the frame to believing that there really was an S. Morgenstern, um, possibly even that Florin really existed as he insists upon all the way through. Um, and uh, anyway, so I, I, I want to be looking at, I, I want to look at the frame that Goldman establishes what exactly is it that he's doing here. Um, but, okay, so let's, uh, let's, let's look at that. This is, this is from the introduction to the, this is from the, to the 25th anniversary edition. Um, I have the 30th anniversary edition too. There are one or two passages from the introduction to the 30th anniversary edition that I might want to look at as well. Um, but, uh, uh, but anyway, this, uh, this is from the 25th anniversary edition. It's still my favorite book in all the world, and more than ever, I wish I had written it. Sometimes I like to fantasize that I did, that I came up with Fezzik, my favorite character, that my imagination summoned the Iacane sequence, the ensuing battle of wits to the death. Alas, Morgan Stern invented it all, and I must be contented with the fact that my abridgment, though killed by all the Florinese experts back in 73, the reviews in the learned journals brutalized me. In my book-writing career, only boys and girls together got a worse savaging. At least brought Morgan Stern to a wider American audience. Okay. Um, so what's, so what's the frame here? What do we get from this? What, and so the, the question I want to ask here, how is Goldman, through this introduction, right, just through these three paragraphs, setting us up for reading the book? How is he positioning himself? How is he, how is, how is he asking us to look at him? How is he asking us to look at Morgenstern? What position is he placing us in exactly? What do you notice here? <laughs> Arthur uh, Harrow adds that he read Boys and Girls together and uh, agreed that it deserved to be savaged. I haven't, so I can't comment on that, but I'll take your word for it. Um, yeah, Lee, isn't it cool? Lee says that, you know, it, it, he's, it, it makes it appear like Goldman's fantasy has come true, right? More than ever, I wish I had written it. He used to fantasize that he did write He did write it, Right. Um, you know that's kind of the, that's kind of the 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 joke there, right? Um, Kat says she loves the cheekiness of declaring his own novel the greatest book ever and wishing that he had written it. Um, yeah, yeah, that is that, that it, it is really cheeky, right? And it's 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 even cheekier because he points out how cheeky Morgenstern is, right? When he quotes the title of the book, you know that that Morgenstern called this the, a classic tale of, and he's like, oh boy, you know, it's pretty cheeky to call your own book a classic tale before it's even been published. Um, but of course, you know, there's like meta cheekiness going on there, right? So I mean, that's 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 clever. That's very funny. Um, <clears throat> good, good. Um, yeah, Kate says that you know he he doesn't he doesn't drop character here. It's like a reading performance. Um, yes, yes. I mean he he Goldman is establishing a particular character here, right? <clears throat> um, more on this though. What is 
his character like exactly? <laughs> Jennifer uh, Visek says uh, he's the ultimate fan of his own work uh, here. Um, yeah, and that's the fact that we know that, right? The fact that there is this, and and you know, he never as as um, Kate, as you say, he doesn't drop character, right? Um, he never once confesses in print that Morgenstern doesn't really exist or that Florin isn't isn't a, a real place, right? Um, I mean, like, you know, the fact that he creates this, like, fictional concept that Stephen King has family back in Florence and goes back to visit all the time, right? Uh, you know, he, he continues to weave this fictional idea uh, of Florence, and, and there's the very casual way that he talks about it, um, as if, I mean, obviously, you know, the, the readers are all going to know Florin, right? Um, you know, it's... Uh, that's that's very consistently done, and yet um, there's an extra level of of humor there, right, Jennifer? In that, yes, he's like declaring himself to be the greatest fan of his own work, but we know that he's joking about that. So the like, you know, that he knows that we know that he's joking, and that's part of the fun, right? Um, anyway, I, I think that that I think. Um, I think works really well. Uh, Lee Smith is pointing out how he paints himself as painfully honest about his limitations. Yeah, he doesn't say he's the greatest. In fact, you know, the very first two sentences here put himself in a, in a humble position. Right? I love this. It's, this is my favorite book, and I, I really, twenty five years later, I wish more than ever that I'd written it. Right? Um, you know, he's not pumping himself up. He's not tearing himself down either, but he's just... Uh, and then, and then Leah, you know, as he goes on and talk about how he's being savaged by the myths, but it's okay. I don't care, right? Um, I, you know, I'm nothing much, and I don't get any credit, and I don't frankly deserve any credit, but it's, it's all about Morgan Stern, right? At least I've brought Morgan Stern to a wider American audience, right? That's, that makes it all worth it, even if, even if, you know, if I don't get anything else out of it, right? It's, uh, it, that's 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 kind of charming. Uh, Sarah Powell calls it pathetic but lovable, uh, and I can <clears throat> I can I I can kind of agree with that. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Good. Um, Yeah, Thomas Johnson says he's he's establishing a convict and convincing metafiction where he's an editor of a great work and can can declare it as a great work as an ostensibly third party observer. Um, good, and you're right, Thomas, that he does poke a lot of fun at the kind of academic who tries to drain the joy out of a text. I have to admit that Thomas, I was I had to be continually I had to continually uh, focus on not getting offended by that. Um, in particular, it was actually that was kind of especially fun since he keeps uh, he keeps pointing to Columbia University as the center of foreign studies uh, in America, and I did my PhD at Columbia, so you know when he's talking about these great Florinese experts at Columbia, I couldn't help but like you know attach particular remembered faces to them. Um, uh, so that was that was that that was kind of fun. But anyway, I I, I did like slightly personally object to the stereotype of, you know, the academics who can't see the fun in anything. But it's okay. It's okay. Um, 
I, uh, I can, I can get over it. Um, Okay, good. Nancy uh, Fosberg says he sets himself up as a kind of unsophisticated reader, as well as a writer who couldn't possibly have written this. Um, yes. Yes. Good. Good. Mary Rose likes how this is both self-deprecation and aggrandizement all in one. Um, yeah. 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 I agree. Um, okay. Now, but here's my question. Here's my question. How does he position Morgenstern? Well, not position, because I don't just mean in this passage. What I want to look at now, I want to look at a few passages where he's either commenting directly on Morgenstern's prose, or a partic- particular passages of Morgenstern um, that Goldman is giving us, and sort of thinking about the. And here, I want to try to make a distinction. In fact, we should adopt some terminology here to make sure that we're clear. Because I want to make a distinction between what Goldman, the writer, is doing and what Goldman, the narrator, is doing. So I'll try to make that distinction between the writer and the narrator. Um, Because you've got the voice of the narrator, who is, you know, and it's the, the narrator that we're discussing here in this passage. Because, of course, Goldman, the writer, is both writing the words of Goldman, the narrator, and the words of Morgenstern, of course. And so one of the things I'm going to be interested in is to look at both of those things. Both look at how the narrator continues to relate himself to Morgenstern over the course of the story, and how um, how the Goldman, the writer, writes Morgenstern, um, and how he there how he threw not just his commentary passages, but through the Morgenstern text itself, how he prompts us uh, to view Morgenstern and sort of the way that he establishes uh, himself. Um, and Lee says it reminds her uh, a bit of Chaucer's narrators uh, and the different sort of embedded levels of the framework. Um, it is a little bit uh, like that. But anyway, okay, let's look at a couple examples. Here's, here's Golden the narrator commenting on Morgenstern. Um, Why would a master of narrative stop his narrative dead before it has much chance to begin generating? No known answer. All I can guess is that for Morgenstern, the real narrative was not Buttercup and the remarkable things she endures, but rather the history of the monarchy and other such stuff. When this version comes out, I expect every Florinese scholar alive to slaughter me, Columbia University has not only the leading Florinese experts in America, but also direct ties to the New York Times book review. I can't help that, and I can only hope they understand my intentions here are in no way meant to be destructive of Morgan Stern's vision. Okay. Um, again, notice we have the, the narrator adopting that same, like, I can't help it, right? Like, I, I'm, I, I know like the reviewers are going to hate it, and the scholars are going to hate it, uh, but... Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah. But what do we take? Now, remember, the context of this is in the beginning of chapter two, um, when he's had to cut out all that, 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 that enormously weighty material that he told has happened, the stuff which put his son off the book, right? With the, you know, where his son stopped reading, um, was this enormously long section on the history of the monarchy, um, of, uh, of, of Florin, and he's asking, why? Why did he? Why did he do this? 
Um, Karita says he he seems to love Morgenstern, but laugh at him at the same time, right? Um, I mean, one question which suggests itself to me on that with his first sentence: Why would a master of narrative stop his narrative dead before it has much of a chance to begin generating? Is um, we've established, have we, that he's a master of narrative, right? Um, uh, on what evidence? Exactly. Have we? To, I mean, again, notice he says this like it's 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 granted, right? Uh, you know, like obviously Morgan Stern is a master of narrative in the same sense that one is going to assume that you know that 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 Shakespeare is a master of dramatic writing. I mean, you know, if, if you come across an awkward pa- passage in Shakespeare, you don't really entertain the question like, "Gosh, maybe Shakespeare wasn't really a very good writer," right? No, that's really not very likely because it, I mean it's pretty well established that Shakespeare is a reasonably good writer, so we don't even entertain that possibility. So, similarly, that seems to be how he is asking us to approach Morgenstern in this first sentence, right? Why would a master of narrative stop his narrative dead before it has much chance at generating? He's got to come up... He feels the need to suggest a theory, which obviously cannot include the possibility that Morgenstern is not actually very good, or that this story is awkward and needs to be changed... And there's an interesting kind of tension there, right? There's an interesting sort of joke about that, because on the one hand, you think about, again, the position that he's put himself and us in. On the one hand, he's telling us Morgan Stern is awesome, and he's like the greatest storyteller ever. But at the same time, he's telling us the story that Morgan Stern actually wrote is not actually... like I've got to abridge it before it's really readable. Um, I mean, my son gave up in the second chapter, and really, who could blame him, right? Um, So, I mean, this combination of reverential respect for Morgan Stern and almost, if you see what I mean, preemptive criticism of Morgan Stern, again, he needs a bridging. It's not... his, 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 His goal is not just to bring Morgan Stern to a wider American public. Like, all he has to do is recirculate the thing. No, he's gotta he's gotta give the good parts version, right? Because the good parts of Morgan Stern are good, but um, if you don't skip to the good parts, who's gonna read the thing, right? Nobody apparently, given how hard it was to find at the local bookstores, and I mean the New York bookstores, like there's only one bookstore in New York City that had one, um, and um, uh, and what's more, uh, you know, again his he has undertaken this whole abridgment in order to bring it to the people. Um, so, uh, yeah, now, as Kat is pointing out, he does seem to give, try try to give an explanation of this, right? Um, that is, uh, the way that, you know, that, uh, Kat says it, uh, um, Morgan Stern seems to be an incidental master of narrative. Um, Goldman, the narrator, doesn't deny that he's a genius, but seems to imply that it's by accident, in between all the stuff that he's really interested in. History, satire, political commentary, etc. Right, Catton, to follow that up, I would say, and the implication is that that other stuff is really not very good, actually. Or... Maybe it's okay if you're into that kind of thing, like if you're one of those Florinese scholars at Columbia University, um, but for the general American public, they're not really interested in that. But, again, notice even sort of the irony contained in the subtitle, The Good Parts Version, right? 
Well, good parts according to whom? Obviously not good parts according to Morgan Stern, based on his own uh, on his own assessment, right? Um, because uh, Morgan Stern obviously liked the stuff, and he recognizes that this is. Um, you know, he even goes so far as to say that his guess is that for Morgan Stern, the whole story about Buttercup and the remarkable things she endures is not really the the real narrative. In other words, he confesses. His his version of his view of what the good parts of the story are, and Morgenstern's version vision of what the good uh, parts are, would be completely different. Um, which leads me to wonder what on earth he means when he says, "I only hope they understand my intentions here are in no way meant to be destructive of Morgenstern's vision." Well, actually, it seems like they are destructive of Morgenstern's vision. Actually, I mean. You've just said his vision is very different, and I'm going to cut his vision right out of this story and instead focus on the bits that I like, uh, and therefore really almost entirely make it um, make it his own, which is exactly what in the introduction he said he didn't do. He oh boy, he really wishes uh, that this were his story. Um, yeah, Carita, exactly. Morgenstern is bad at the things that he, Morgenstern, really cared about. And that seems to be, that seems to be it. Um, and Philip uh, Lord points out further that, of course, Goldman is interrupting the narrative to ask us why Morgenstern would interrupt the narrative. Um, yeah, that's a, that's another fun uh, little ironic piece. But see, that's the kind of thing, um, if you like this book, you know, if you like the Goldman narrator, uh, if you like the way that this frame operates, you've got to love that kind of thing, right? If you like that kind of irony, the kind of humor involved in, um, uh, the kind of humor involved in saying, uh, you know, Philip, exactly as you're suggesting, I'm going to interrupt this to criticize the interrupting of narratives, right? Um, if you can, if you can enjoy that kind of ironic humor. Um, then, you know, there's definitely, there's definitely a lot here. Um, but it's one of the things that I would draw attention to though here is the implicit, well, okay. I mean, it's explicit criticism of Morgan Stern. Um, but again, the kind of tension that is developing here in the question of, is Morgan Stern a good writer or not. Again, on the one hand, he said, this is the greatest book ever, and yet I'm not only shortening it, but I'm making it into something that's quite different from what it originally was. I have to do that or it won't even be readable, right? But it's a classic, and the guy who wrote it was a genius, right? Uh, so, uh, the, 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 that And that tension, I think, is something that comes up, in my mind anyway, it comes up pretty consistently throughout the narrative, um, because I think it's not only in the passages that he leaves out that we can see this kind of tension, but also in the passages that in many of the passages that he leaves in. Um, yeah, yeah, good. And as Daniel points out, it's not only, it's not only that it's bad, but the bad parts are also really, really long. Um, yeah, exactly. And that seems to be sort of a way for him to exaggerate exactly sort of how bad, um, how bad they were. Um, Okay. 
Okay. Interesting. Sarah Powell has a theory. She says, I think the narrator can't let go of the childhood belief that Morgenstern was the greatest, even when faced with a challenge, even faced with the large swaths of terrible writing as an adult. It, it, that is an interesting theory, isn't it, Sarah? I mean, we, you know, he, he's admitted, he's told in his story that, uh, you know, in his introduction, that it was the abridged version of Morgenstern, which he didn't realize at the time was abridged, that his father was reading to him. Um, that made him fall in love with Morgenstern, which made him fall in love with stories, right? With books and adventures in general. Um, and so there does seem to be, you know, so he's going to, it's one of his, one of the cornerstones of his childhood that Morgenstern is the greatest writer of all time. And so, so the idea that <clears throat> he is going to carry on insisting and even believing that that's true, even as he himself brings forward evidence that it isn't true, um, that uh, I think um, is interesting. You know, that, that I, I think that that's, that's a really interesting way to think about it. I don't know if... I don't know if, if we can go all the way in that direction. That is, I'm not sure that the Goldman narrator supplies us with enough evidence to really conclude that... that to absolutely conclude that that's the case, but I think... Um, um, I think that that's uh, um, still an interesting way to think about it. Um, yeah, Kate Neville says it, it uh, makes her think of Tolkien's remarks about the princess and the goblin stories, that he was disappointed to, to have to admit that he didn't like them later in life. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Brandon Melvin says, I related strongly to these silly comments in the text because I first read this in high school while reading classics, including Moby Dick, which has long skippable parts. I love Moby Dick, and I love the Wailing Chapters. So, I can't agree with that. I know he makes that crack about Moby Dick as well. Um, that also made me bristle. I have to admit, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna, yeah. And and Brianna, I totally said, how old was I when I read Moby Dick? Seventeen. I was seventeen when I read Moby Dick. Um. But anyhow, uh, uh, never mind. I'm not gonna talk about Moby Dick. Uh, <laughs> but but it's certainly, nevertheless, Brianna, you're certainly right that that's sort of the spirit of the thing. Uh, that he's doing. It's absolutely the way he describes uh, sort of the way that his father, the narrator's father, read it to him, right? Um, and seems to be the spirit with which he's approaching he's approaching this. Um, okay, another example. The parentheses. Um, this is all those parentheses about, like, this was before Europe, right? Or, uh, you know, this was after taxes, uh, and, and all that, all that kind of stuff. And his, he's just, so he just had, he just quoted the comments from his copy editor, um, who, like, is being driven insane by the parentheses and can't figure out when this book could possibly be, uh, uh could possibly be taking place. Um, because, you know, and it's just like, how can it be before Europe, but after Paris, right? Um, uh, and so, and this, so, so what I'm quoting here is the Goldman narrator's commentary on 
Morgan Stern's parentheses following up from his anecdote about his copyright, his, uh, his, um, uh, his proofreader's um, uh, uh, frustration. Either Morgan Stern meant them seriously, or he didn't. Or maybe he meant some of them seriously, and some others he didn't. But he never said which were the seriously ones. Or maybe it was just the author's way of telling the reader stylistically that this isn't real. It never happened. That's what I think. In spite of the fact that if you read back into Florinese history, it did happen. The facts, anyway. No one can say about the actual motivations. All I can suggest to you is, if the parentheses bug you, don't read them. Now, what do we make of this? Um... Either Morgan Stern meant them seriously, or he didn't. Well, that seems that seems safe, right? Um, and then he says, his theory is that the parentheses are a way his way of telegraphing to the reader. Morgan Stern now is telling is communicating indirectly to the reader. This isn't real, it never happened. By continually framing it chronologically in an impossible time before some things and after other things and uh, uh, and everything else, it's his way of suggesting that it isn't real. And then he immediately says, so he thinks that Morgan Stern is saying it isn't real, it never happened. In spite of the fact that it did happen. Right, he he insists, and he c- continues to insist that uh, the uh, you know the 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 events of the Princess Bride are, are absolutely historical and and very well attested um, by uh, in Florinese history. Uh, this, of course, he kind of doubles down on this idea in the introduction to the 30th anniversary edition when he describes his trip with his grandson to the Morgan Stern Museum in Florin uh, and you know actually looking at all of the artifacts that artifacts that they have buttercup's wedding dress uh, the six finger sword uh, you know the imprint of, of Fezzik's hand and the suit of Fezzik's clothing um, and all that stuff um, so again the I, he Within the frame, Goldman, the narrator, not just insists, absolutely takes for granted that the facts are real, right? That the story actually happened. Um, and again, I say takes it for granted. There are many, th- many of the th- many times that he implies that that we either can or probably already have verified it ourselves, or have already, you know, have known, but we probably learned about it in school or something. So obviously, everyone is going to accept the fact that this stuff is historical, right? And yet, his theory is that Morgan Stern is signaling to us through his parentheses that this isn't real, it never happened? What do we understand about that? So, he's said on several occasions that Morgan Stern was himself a satirist. Would this therefore presumably be part of Morgan Stern's satire? Again, notice how he himself reconciles these apparently irreconcilable things. It never happened. It did happen. The facts, anyway, he says, no one can say about the actual motivations. So, that what Morgan Stern is doing, according to Goldman's, Goldman the narrator's theory here, what Morgan Stern is doing 
is creating a satirical version, a fake version, an, an unreal version that never happened of the historical events, which everyone admits happened, right? But that the actual motivations, when he's giving us the, you know, sort of the behind, not just the the the, the events, but the the real story behind it. That's what uh, that's what didn't really happen. That's what's fake. That's what is and must be, therefore, satire. Right? And again, we're supposed to understand. Morgenstern uh, is Florinese, right? You know, he's one of the greatest writers uh, from Florin, and he's speaking about, like, the great story of, uh, you know, the great national story of his people. Um, so if you're going to do that, and you're going to twist it, you're going to make it unreal. You're going to tell it like it never happened. Which, again, that's Goldman's, the narrator's theory. You have to have some satirical purpose for this, right? Um, what do you think? Um, <laughs> Sarah King says, either the narrator meant this theory seriously or he didn't. Or maybe he meant part of it seriously and the other part he didn't. Very good, Sarah. Very good. Um, uh, yeah, and you know, Sarah Powell says, uh, you know, the author is playing with the reader. I agree. Um, but it's fun to, to piece this out. Um, uh, Lee was bringing up Chaucer earlier, uh, and of course, as many uh, many of you are Mythgard students, and many of you here in this class took my Chaucer class uh, uh, in either our Mythgard and Signum classes earlier this uh, year. Was, it, was that this year? Was it last year? I can't even remember anymore. It all runs together. It was last year, wasn't it? Anyway, recently I taught my class on Chaucer. We did all of Chaucer. Um, Chaucer is one of my very... Chaucer is my, my second favorite author. Um, uh, and I... Um, I love the way that Chaucer plays. This is one of the things that Chaucer does. Lee is absolutely right. Um, this, this way of sort of embedding different layers of framework... Um, so that you know, so that you have, it's one thing to tell a story, right, and have a have a, you know be a writer who's telling a story. It's another thing to have a writer telling a story which takes part within an external frame, so that you have a frame story with storytellers who are telling the internal story, and then you can play with lots of fun stuff about the relationship between the teller of the story and the story itself. Right, but then Chaucer does this extra level where he puts himself within that story as well. So he creates the Chaucer narrator character who's telling us the story, which is different from the from the character of Chaucer the poet. And Goldman appears to be doing a parallel thing. Um, I'm not saying that uh, uh, I'm not saying that that the Princess Bride uh, is as good as the Canterbury Tales. I don't think Goldman's nearly as good at this as Chaucer is. Um, uh, and if uh, and if you disagree with me, I'll fight you. But um, we, uh, but we nevertheless can see can see a similar pattern. And I do think um, through this character that he's created, that is that character that is Goldman the narrator, um, um, which from the very beginning we've seen is is this sort of bumbling 
which again, that was Chaucer's method also, um, to create this bumbling, incompetent narrator figure. Um, it's it's so I I do think it's it's worth looking at, but it's not just worth looking at. I think it's important if we're going to be thinking carefully about the story. It's important to sort of tease those things apart, um, to try to keep straight who is joking about what, okay? And this is, to me, one of the things that is most complicated about this story, and I would say most risky about this story, is that Morgenstern himself is being set up to be himself a satirical figure. Um... Let me explain what I mean by that. The simpler way to do a funny satire is to have... create this narrator figure who is commenting on the work of Morgenstern, but to have Morgenstern himself be quite earnest. Right? If Morgenstern is... Because that clarifies the question of whom exactly we are being invited to laugh at, and whom we're being invited to laugh with throughout this story. But Goldman doesn't do that. Um, it's not clear whom we're supposed to be... You know, Are we laughing along with Goldman at Morgenstern? Sometimes, maybe. Are we laughing with Morgenstern at the characters of this story? That he's taking these real characters and doing something satirical with them as... Golden the narrator seems to imply in this in this passage. Um, is the joke at the expense of Florini's history or Florini's tradition? Um, again, like in the end, whom are we laughing at? Where are we? Where do we stand as readers? Where do we stand? And sort of, you know, whom do we stand with? And everything. And it's it's tricky. It's complicated. Um, yeah, um, Sarah King says, maybe we're supposed to laugh at them all. Yes, yes. Um, and perhaps you might think I'm being, uh, and not, not you, Sarah, in particular, but, uh, maybe, you know, maybe you guys might think I, I'm perhaps being a trifle pedantic and trying to unravel, like, okay, yes, it's funny, but, like, what is the thrust of the laughter, right? You know, you, you might be inclined to satirize me, right, and be like, dude, you're just like one of those Columbia University academics, right? You know, which actually... Technically, I am, I suppose. But anyway, you're like one of those university academics who are, uh, you know, who who can't just laugh. It's just funny, right? It's just funny. And I agree, it is funny. I'm not trying to deny that it's funny, but but it's satire, right? It's not just comedy. There's a difference between comedy and satire. I mean, satire is a subset of comedy, but what makes satire different, what makes satire special, is that there's something we're laughing at, Right? It's satire is directed comedy, directed laughter. And this has all of the trappings of satire, which makes me want to figure out what are we supposed to be laughing at? Because you know, at 
To continue the parallel, Chaucer is a brilliant satirist and directs our laughter in lots of places. And if you if you think carefully through how he's working things, that you can just laugh if you want and not think about it. Um, and uh, but if you do think about it, it becomes not only funnier. Um, but also uh, more interesting and more meaningful um, as you begin to really sort of sort out exactly how are we being manipulated, how are we being pushed, in what directions are we being pushed as readers. So that's what I'm trying to sort out here as we're as we're reading Morgan's turn. So okay, um, let's uh, let's Karen let's let's look at some of his uh, that is Morgan's turns prose itself. Um, He says he's... uh, uh, In the previous passage, uh, the Goldman narrator was telling us that he's much more interested in things like the history of the monarchy and stuff like that. More interested in that than in in Buttercup. Uh, uh, So, uh, this, I suppose, is a sample, very small sample, um, of the kind of thing, I guess, that Morgenstern was really interested in. The land of Florin was set between where Sweden and Germany would eventually settle. This was before Europe. In theory, it was ruled by King Lotharon and his second wife, the Queen. (laughs) I love the name of the Queen. She's, you know, the Queen. But in fact, the King was barely hanging on, could only rarely tell day from night, and basically spent his time in muttering. He was very old, every organ in his body had long since betrayed him, and most of his important decisions regarding Florin had a certain arbitrary quality that bothered many of the leading citizens. Prince Humperdinck actually ran things. If there had been a Europe, he would have been the most powerful man in it. Even as it was, nobody within a thousand miles wanted to mess with him. Okay, so what do we make of this here? And again, thinking about, you know, here, what I'm I'm wanting to do is kind of applying what we were just looking at in the previous uh, section. The previous section, the Goldman narrator was trying to tell us his interpretation of Morgan Stern's tone. Right of Morgenstern's style. Why is he doing things like saying set between where Sweden and Germany would eventually settle? This was before Europe. Um, remember the theory uh, is is that it's uh, set in the in the indeterminate past. Exactly, Arthur. Uh, what's the tone here? How is Florin? being treated, if we're, if we are th- examining the Goldman narrator's theory, which seems to be what he's suggesting, um, that Morgenstern's purpose is satirical, what is being, uh, what is being satirized here? And of course, as Kate Neville points out, uh, what's between Sweden and Germany? What, what's between Sweden and Germany? <laughs> An ocean is what's between Sweden and Germany. Yeah, there's a there's a sea. Uh, it says water between Sweden and Germany. Um, yeah, yeah, but it's uh, it's before, it's before, it's before, it's before. right, right. Jennifer and Sarah both say you could argue that, of course, Denmark is between Sweden and Germany. Um, Yes, yes. Um, uh, 
not that that makes much more sense of the geography. I think it, that certainly doesn't lead us. I I, I suspect to uh, say that we can identify it uh, as uh, um, as Denmark. Um, but um, yeah. Okay. So so more. What's he What's he What's he talking about here? Um, So he's uh, uh, Michael suggesting that since this is sort of a fable, he can mock European politics without stating that he's doing so. Um, that he's mocking Europe and monarchies. Who? Morgenstern? Our theoretical Florinese author? is satirizing European monarchies? European politics? Is that what's happening here? Um, Yeah, as Arthur points out, um, one of the... and we're going to come to this in a few minutes... There's another thing, of course, that's coming in for satire in this book, which we haven't even talked about yet, which is the fairy tale, right? This is ultimately pretty much a fairy tale story, and that seems to be something that's being satirized as well. Um, Yeah, so Michael Cheskowski says Goldman the writer is using it to satirize European monarchies. Okay, good. That's an important distinction, because, of course, we can't accuse Goldman the narrator of doing that, because Goldman the narrator has no hands on this. Right? These are Morgenstern's words. Right? Um, Right. So what's Morgenstern's interest? Um... And again, I'm thinking here in particular about things like those, really those first two sentences, especially thinking of the the comment about the parentheses that Goldman, the narrator, was making in the previous in the previous passage. Um, the whole tone of this passage certainly makes it hard to take Florin as a kingdom seriously, right? Hard for us to invest. Too much in Florin. Um, I mean, the story it says like the king was barely hanging on, could only rarely tell day from night. Um, uh, that his every organ in his body had long since betrayed him. This is not the way in which you speak of an august king of your kingdom if you are being a an earnest and patriotic historian, right? Um, there is a certain uh, uh, um, yeah, as Kat says, he doesn't exactly represent his country's history, history respectfully. Um, certainly not. No reverential tone, Patrick. Absolutely not. Uh, for the king and his unnamed queen. In fact, that's, that's, as I mentioned as I was reading, it's one of my favorite touches. Um, the fact that it's introduced was ruled by King Lotharon and his second wife, the queen. Right? Um, with the, the comma leading, you know, the appositive leading us to expect her name, right? 
Um, but we don't get her name. She's just dismissed as the queen. Um, uh, it, it's, it's, no, there's not a reverential tone here. Um, it seems to be even making fun of people who would take, like, to make fun of people who would expect to find what the queen's name was, right? You probably expected me to say her name, right? <laughs> As if it matters. His wife was the queen, right? Whatever. Um, that seems to be the kind of the kind of error here, and that you know, his his most important decisions regarding Florin had a certain a certain arbitrary quality that bothered many of the leading citizens. Uh, that's certainly my favorite line in this passage. Um, but again, and even there, you might call that almost in its way respectful, in that he's not coming out and saying that you know, the king was a bad king, or even, you know, that the king was, uh, you know, he's not saying, like, you know, he could just call him, like, the old crazy king who did crazy things. He doesn't, he doesn't say that, right? He's indirect. They have a certain arbitrary quality that bothered many of the leading citizens, right? So there's this sort of, like, veneer of respectfulness but even that veneer is itself very comical, and it really, to me, only sort of sets off the rather disrespectful um, uh, 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 way in which he's talking about this. Now, I love Daniel Bear's point. Um, most readers seem very ignorant of uh, geography, thus he can get away uh, with saying it's between Sweden and Germany, you know, saying it's like in the middle of the North Sea, um, while appearing to be a geography expert. Um, right now, again, we'd have to say that that's Morgenstern, doing that now. Um, uh, which is interesting. Remember the comment made by, or, or attributed, anyway, to Goldman the narrator's father, when the father, who, remember, himself was Florinese. That's why he read The Princess Bride, or read from The Princess Bride, uh, to his son. Um, so the Florinese father, the failed barber, um, would um, said that he, that Morgenstern, like um, Goldman's father himself, uh, came to America. So this is actually, we're supposed to understand, the Princess Bride was written in America by Morgan. So Morgenstern was an expatriate when he wrote this, which means, or implies, or suggests that the book was written for Americans and not for the Florinese at all? Um, I don't know. Um, that seems... I mean, it's a lot to build on that one reference to the fact that Morgenstern, like himself, came over to America. Um, but uh, it might help to explain some of the satire um, of these legendary events. Yeah, Nancy points out he did write it in Florinese, and there's an important... Well, no, no, Nancy, just say he did his own translation, that he did write it in American. American. Well, yeah, basically. He did write it in English. Um, I was going to say he wrote it in America, but then changed. Uh, Morgenstern did write the English version. He also wrote a Florinese version, but he wrote it in English also. 
Um, he does. He he does insist on that. So at least Nancy, we don't have another layer, which we could well do, right? If we had a translator as well in there, then we'd have to be asking, you know, uh, yeah, it'd be even more complicated. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, Lynn is suggesting that Goldman, now, when I, I assume you mean Goldman the writer, is satirizing people in power. Um, the, well, certainly, I mean, the way that we're getting Pr- Prince Humperdinck set up here, right? He is, uh, um, he's the, the guy, he's not king yet, um, uh, and he's not the most powerful man in Europe because it's before Europe, um, but uh, nobody within a thousand miles wanted to mess with him, right? So um, he is established first and foremost before we learn about his being a hunter, before we learn, um, before we really meet him or get to know him. Uh, the first thing that we learn about him is that he is a very, very powerful man. Um, so he, that does seem to be a kind of a stand-in, a stand-in there. Um, uh, Jennifer Vizek asks, you know, would the tra- the the translator like like uh, like Tolkien posits in the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings? Um, yeah, exactly, um, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I, I don't want to I don't want to go there, but um, 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 but yeah. Um, Daniel asks, if Morgan Stern was writing in America for Americans, why would Goldman have to edit and change it? Was Morgan Stern ignorant of American sensibilities to which you'd have to say probably, I mean, presumably, uh, since, uh, I mean, if we're to believe Goldman the narrator, then presumably um, he, 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 he was, as what he wrote wasn't very congenial. Um, Another example. Again, thinking about Morgan Stern's tone here. Uh, this is uh, Buttercup's parents looking out to see Count Rugen uh, uh, approaching the house. The father made a quick finger point. Look. You look. You know how. Buttercup's parents did not have exactly what you might call a happy marriage. All they ever dreamed of was leaving each other. Buttercup's father shrugged and went back to the window. Ah, he said after a while. And a little later again, ah. Buttercup's mother glanced up briefly from her cooking. Such riches, Buttercup's father said. Glorious. Buttercup's mother hesitated, then put her stew spoon down. This was after stew, but so is everything. When the first man first clambered from the slime and first and made his first home on land, what he had for supper that first night was stew. Okay. Um... I found this passage interesting in a couple one it was an, another instance of another one of the you know one of the sort of more intrusive of his parentheses um so sort of seeing how that uh works into the narrative um but well let's start with that what's the effect of that Morgan Stern's adding the business about stew this was after stew but so is everything Except taxes, apparently. Um, uh, 
What do you make of this? Why is the master of narrative interrupting his narrative to make a comment about stew? What does the stew comment establish? Do you see what I mean by that? We've got three things going on here at this moment in the story, right? First, we have Count Rugen showing up to come see Buttercup, because he's heard rumors from that other rich guy who rode by and saw Buttercup and said she was very beautiful, so Count Rugen is coming to check her out. That's what's happening in the story. But that's not what Morgenstern is drawing our attention towards, right? In fact, he f- diverts our attention away from it twice. Once to divert our attention to Buttercup's parents' state of domestic infelicity, right? Um, they did not have exactly what you might call a happy marriage. Um, and drawing much attention to the, the continual squabbling of Buttercup's parents... And then he further draws attention away from... He digresses again from that um, when she's... You know, the mother is stirring stew, and so he takes the occasion of that to make this comment... um, to make this comment about stew. Um, Good. Now, one thing Michael is pointing out, of course, that Buttercup is... uh, uh, will soon have marriage proposed to her. Um, and so we learn about her parents' unhappy marriage. Um, yes, yes, I agree. Though, again, I I myself sort of place some stress on the timing of this. Um, that is, it's not just sort of background information we're given at a, a sort of a different point. This is... This kind of thing happens a lot. I, I suggest, and you know, maybe you disagree, but I suggest that this is typical of Morgan Stern's style. That at moments like this, when something interesting is about to happen, he often diverts us into other things. Um, or asks us to think about something different, something sort of silly. Um, now, Philip is pointing out how you know, that uh, he's associating stew with sort of, you know, something dull, boring, and common. Stew is like the oldest thing in the world, right? Um, uh, and it, it does provide a little sort of context to uh, Buttercup's home life in that sense. Um, yeah, now, okay, see, Thomas Johnson says, Goldman, the author, through Morgan Stern's narrative voice, immediately presents an unromantic portrayal of marriage, portrait of marriage, that undermines the typical idealization of the institution in fairy tales, and which the title of the novel might lead one to expect. Um, yes, yes. Um, I agree, I agree. That does seem to be part of how this story one example of the way in which this story seems to me to be systematically deflating the fairy tale that it's telling. Um, But again, to me, another important element of that deflating is merely the distraction. Um, The fact that our attention keeps getting diverted. Let me me give you another example of what I mean by that. Um, 
this is, uh, of course, Buttercup has just realized that she is in love with Wesley, uh, and that she is terribly envy, you know, she's terribly jealous um, of Wesley, and uh, uh, and and afraid that uh, he might run off with the Duchess, or that the Duchess might run off with him. Flailing and thrashing, Buttercup wept and tossed and paced and wept some more, and there have been three great cases of jealousy since David of Galilee was first afflicted with the emotion when he could no longer stand the fact that his neighbor Saul's cactus outshone his own. Originally, jealousy pertained solely to plants, other people's cactus or ginkgos, or later, when there was grass, grass, which is why, even to this day, we say that someone is green with jealousy. Buttercup's case rated a close fourth on the all-time list. Um, yeah, no, Lynn, we don't know the other cases, right? Uh, it's part of the, it's part of the perception of depth, right? That, uh, uh, or maybe, I don't know. Um, but again, here's another, another example, right? Notice how that sentence goes. Just let me read that first sentence again. Notice where we start this sentence and notice where we end this sentence and how we get from the beginning to the end of this sentence. Flailing and thrashing, Buttercup wept and tossed and paced and wept some more, and there have been three great cases of jealousy, since David of Galilee was first afflicted with the emotion when he could no longer stand the fact that his neighbor Saul's cactus outshone his own. See there? We start with flailing and thrashing, Buttercup wept and tossed, and we end with when he could no longer stand the fact that his neighbor Saul's cactus outshone his own. Same sentence, right? Um, the only thing that joins these things together, you know, and there have been three great cases of jealousy. Um, it's not a complete non sequitur, right? Um, it begins as if it's going to build up the the jealousy, you know, Buttercup's jealousy, which you know, so the symptoms of which have been described: the flailing, the thrashing, the weeping, the tossing, the pacing, the weeping, right? Um, and so now it's going to step back and in order to put this into context for us and convey exactly how powerful and how great was this was Buttercup's jealousy. But in illustrating this somehow, again, in the same sentence, we end up talking about cacti um, and the jealousy of one person's cactus for another, which seems not... I would argue, to build up Buttercup's jealousy, but uh, rather to invite us to laugh at it. He doesn't actually say Buttercup's jealousy uh, over Wesley was just as uh, as shallow and silly as one person being jealous of another person's cactus or ginkgo. Um, but it's hard to avoid that implication when we read that sentence uh, from uh, from one end to the next. Um, Kate Neville points out, um, and I, I too, Kate, can't avoid this at all, um, the use of the names David and Saul um, I remind us, uh, I mean, it's that those are not coincidental names, um, and, you know, there's... You can either go in the direction of, of uh, you know, Kate, as you were suggesting, of, uh, of you know, David's uh, 
you know, of the story of of David and Bathsheba and his seduction of his one of his uh, his uh, military captain's wife wives, or um, you can go the other way into Saul's terrible jealousy against David, um, you know, which led Saul to try to kill David a whole bunch of times. Um, the story of Saul and David is certainly a story of jealousy. Um, but it has nothing to do with either cactuses, cacti, uh, which Goldman, the narrator, never successfully, correctly pluralizes, um, uh, or, uh, or or about ginkgos. And of course, you're absolutely right, Michael, the fact that he identifies him as David of Galilee. Now, he's not saying it's the same dude. He's not saying it's King David, right? But I agree with Kate we're coupling David and Saul together like that. You cannot think of David and the Old Testament, David and Saul, and yet calling him David of Galilee, it's like he, Morgenstern, is screwing up the whole thing, right? And then, like, his sort of sententious uh, explanation of why we say someone is green with jealousy because it had to do with grass back in the old days, so that's why... that. A isn't true, and B doesn't make any sense, actually. Um, um, but again, the tone with which it's sort of added in there. Um, when we finally get back to Buttercup, at the end of this section, Buttercup's case rated a close fourth on the all-time list. Um, again, we're still in theory building up the severity and um, grandeur of uh, of Buttercup's jealousy. But, I mean, if I was in the moment, I've lost the moment, right? I, I just, I don't, I'm not there anymore. Um, with, now that we're, uh, you lost me at Ginkgo's, right? I, I can't. Um, and, um, so anyway, I, um, um, That, I think, is interesting. Now, as Kate adds, the Morgenstern parentheses are very often historically wrong, which implies that Morgenstern, for all of his narrative skill, did not truly appreciate his own story, or, as the Goldman narrator was implying, is deliberately undermining it, right? That undermining it and, undermining it and distracting from it is, in a sense, um, his, his, his intention here in that he's satirizing the historical story itself. Um, yeah, and several of you are wondering uh, who's keeping these all-time lists and where are they posted. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, again, Morgenstern, <clears throat> Morgenstern speaks as if everyone is aware of them. Buttercup's rate case rated a close fourth on the all-time list. Again, no further explanation, obviously, is needed. Um, another thing I want to point out about the tone here, because again, this, this was a passage I, I was thinking about a lot. Um, and again, in trying to think about the different layers of the narrative here. My cows, Buttercup's father managed to repeat, hoping he was not going mad, because the truth was, and he knew it well, he had terrible cows. For years, nothing but complaints from the people in the village. If anyone else had had milk to sell, he would have been out of business in a minute. 
Now, granted, things had improved since the farm boy had come to slave for him. No question, the farm boy had certain skills, and the complaints were quite non-existent now. But that didn't make his, fi his the finest cows in Florin. Still, he didn't argue with the Count. One of the things, of course, that is a, 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 a consistent uh, running theme in the this whole, you know, in, in much of this chapter, certainly the stuff that's going on with Buttercup and with the farm boy, is the way that Morgenstern is depicting the naivete of every of almost everybody, right? Um, and uh, this is a moment. And there are a few. This is one of the ones I wanted to. Uh, um, I, you know that that struck me as particularly interesting. Moments where we, the readers, are seeing something that the characters are not right. It's sort of a moment of a moment of dramatic irony, a moment of somebody kind of peering over the heads of the characters and kind of winking at us, right? Um, why are the complaints non-existent? They they all go on to talk, right? As if like it's obviously something that the slave boy has uh, that you know that the the farm boy, excuse me, I called him the slave boy accidentally. Something the farm boy um, has done uh, to the cows in order to make them such excellent cows, right? Um, and what could the farm boy possibly have done to make them such such you know to create such an incredible turnaround in the cows? I think we understand pretty clearly that there has been no real turnaround in the cows. Um, his cows were terrible cows. They're doing better with the farm boy there to take care of them. But they're still, they're still not the finest cows in Florin. Why have complaints ceased, do you think? What's the implication? The farm boy had certain skills and the complaints were quite non-existent now. Oh, you mean like the way he feeds the cows? Because we established later on that he's obviously very good at that. There's something he does when he feeds the cows that apparently makes them prosper. He's hot, Cat says. Yes, yes, that's one of his skills. Um, uh, there are two reasons I can think of based on the stories that we get about the farm boy in this part, which would lead me to believe why we are not getting complaints now, uh, why Buttercup's father no longer receives complaints about his milk. Um, Karita asks if being hot is a skill. Yes, yes, it's his, uh, the farm boy has worked hard to develop that skill, apparently. Um, uh, <laughs> Ian Bylock says, I bet it has to do with his teeth. Probably so. He does have nice teeth, right? Um, now, it's also possible, the other potential reading is that there's physical intimidation involved. Remember, he does thrash people, too, um, especially the boys that come hanging around Buttercup's window later on. But that's, um, I, I, think the, I think that Cat's theory is likelier to be, to be true. Um, if one asks, who was likely to have been uh, making the complaints? He just says the people in the village. Which people? 
in the village would be most likely to be complaining about the milk that they receive. Um, well, I, I think the implication is that he's hot, and that uh, the you know the 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 women who are buying milk aren't complaining because he's the one who sells the milk too. So um, they're not complaining. Uh, I, I think, yeah, I think, Karina, I think the implication is that he looks sexy when delivering milk. That's what I'm getting here, too. But nobody else in the story is getting this, right? There are so many things that go unsaid in this part of the narrative. Um, Buttercup doesn't get them. Um, Buttercup's parents, uh, like, they catch on to some of the things... Um, but this whole sequence with the du- Duke and the Duchess and the feeding of the cows is this series of, like, some people understanding some of the story, some of the time. Um, but again, my my question is, yes, the Countess gets it. Well, she certainly gets the hot part, right, Kat? Um, but, um, I, but, okay, so my question, though, in all of this stuff is not just what is the implication but who is making the implication? It, the way that it's no question, the farm boy had certain skills, and the complaints were quite non-existent. Now, I read a wink in that passage, in the tone of that passage, set off by dashes as it is. That to me has all of the characteristics of a wink from a narrator. Now, my question is. Who's winking at us? Is it Morgenstern winking at us? Or is is it only Goldman, the writer, who's winking at us? Presumably the narrator didn't touch this, because this is not his thing, right? Um, who's, who's winking? Is Morgenstern winking at us? Is this part of Morgenstern's satire? What do you think? Jennifer thinks it's Morgenstern. Yeah, Lynn agrees. If we see Morgenstern as the satirist, right, the one who is satirizing the historical tradition of his country of Florin, right, um, him showing how, what a sucker Buttercup is would fit with that, I think. Um, Daniel thinks it's, it's Goldman, Goldman the writer, I assume you mean, Daniel, um, and again, I, the, the crucial difference here is how we take Morgenstern, how we're supposed to be reading, how we as readers are positioned in relationship to Morgenstern. Um, because we could have Morgan, this could be a passage where Morgenstern is himself oblivious to it. So that, again, it's, uh, it's like I was saying later, who were we saying earlier, who are we laughing at, right? Are we laughing just at Buttercup and Buttercup's father here? Or are we also laughing at Morgenstern, who also doesn't himself even really see the joke? That's possible. Um, I'm not sure I find that terribly likely. Again, this sounds like... It does sound like a deliberate wink on behalf of the writer. Uh, It's possible. It's possible. Um, but I think it's likely to be Morgenstern. It's one of the things that I want to try to build, to try to understand how are we supposed to be reading these frames. Um, well, let's let's go back a little bit. Um, 
and and uh, think about the, you know I, I've been kind of jumping around because I wanted to look at a few of these passages because they provide, in my opinion, some little interesting glimpses at the tone that that uh, you know Goldman the writer gives to Morgan Stern uh, here to, to try to see if we can understand a little bit better the f- the the ground that we're standing on when we're reading the story and responding to it and laughing at it. Um, now I want to kind of go back to the beginning. I know, you, I know you guys are all like, it's been an hour and 40 minutes and we're now we're going back to the beginning. Um, but yeah, yeah, I want to go back to the beginning um, and think about the whole sort of fairy tale shape of this, right? We're reading a fairy tale story. How is he treating that fairy tale story? The outline, if it's not itself a traditional outline, certainly contains lots of traditional elements, right? We have a very beautiful but poor girl, right? Raised in very humble circumstances where they eat stew, the most ancient food of human beings. Um, She falls in love with a wonderful, gorgeous, brave, but also poor boy who cannot support her, so he departs to seek his fortune and then vanishes under mysterious circumstances and is not seen by her again. A mighty prince woos the beautiful but common girl whom he sees across the field, and she marries him but still mourns her lost love in her heart. This, I mean, all these things it seem like fairly straightforward fairy tale tropes, right? Uh, nothing there seems... Nothing in the outline... Um, seems uh, seems outlandish. So how does he treat this? Um, how do you go? Well, the first thing, and we've talked a little bit about the lists. The beginning of the story is pretty striking um, in that he insists on this list stuff from the very beginning of the narrative. This is the first paragraph of chapter one. The year that Buttercup was born, the most beautiful woman in the world was a French scullery maid named Annette. Annette worked in Paris for the Duke and Duchess de Guiche, and it did not escape the Duke's notice that someone extraordinary was polishing the pewter. The Duke's notice did not escape the notice of the Duchess either, who was not very beautiful and not very rich, but plenty smart. The Duchess set about studying Annette, and shortly found her adversary's tragic flaw, chocolate. And thence comes the description of her putting chocolates all over the place until Annette, the beautiful scullery maid, gets very fat. Um, uh, Nancy asks, how's the Duchess not very rich? Presumably, before she was married, uh, the Duke could, of course, theoretically be poor as well, but, or, you know, that is relatively poor. Um, <laughs> Philip says it's a fluid scale. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, um, uh, but I, I, I suspect that the implication is that, uh, the wife, the wife didn't bring a whole lot of money to the marriage. If she did, she would still have power over her husband. If her husband had a title but little money, and she was really wealthy, he would still, she would have a little more uh, uh, leverage in that relationship. So she doesn't have the leverage either of beauty or of wealth, uh, of independent wealth, but uh, she does have brains. That, at least, is my understanding um, of that sentence. What do you make of this beginning? On the one hand, sort of lurking in the background is, um, you know, the the like the Snow White story, right? 
mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all. This sense of competition, uh, which is formalized and elaborated in incredible detail here at the beginning of this story. Um, it's like we're taking a single reference that is what might be in a normal fairy tale, a single reference. Um, you know, maybe a sentence like, Buttercup was one of the most beautiful women alive, right? And it's sort of seizing upon the humor implicit in that idea of comparison, right? Um, you know, this sort of fairy tale kind of, you know, the way that he sort of transforms us into into beauty pageant judges, right? First we have Annette, the scullery maid, and then we have, you know, this, this Indian girl who unfortunately, you know, gets the pox, and then you know, all these other um, you know, sort of case after case um, of all of these things. It's a send-up, I guess, in one sense of that one particular, but really kind of small, fairy tale uh, trope. Um, but this goes on for a long time. More on this. What's the effect on the, of this? How does it set us up to view Buttercup? This is all presumably a part of our setup for um, for for meeting Buttercup. What's what's going on here? Um, what things do we learn? Um, Carita says, Marriage is not romantic. Jealousy is not grand. Beauty is not immortal. Forget everything you've learned from fairy tales. Um, and certainly putting it all in a, in a sort of a much more modern context of like this top 20 list uh, that he has going on um, certainly puts, you know, a, a sort of a glossy vision, you know, fairy tale vision into a... Um, you know, this sort of very practical, hard-headed, modern rating system, um, which absolutely changes the, uh, the sort of, the, the attitude of things. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Thomas Johnson says it's taking one of the cardinal themes of fairy tales, female beauty, and showing how transient it is and not necessarily conducive to happiness. Annette is much happier after she gets fat and marries the baker. Um, and the happiness of I forget her name now. The third beautiful girl that he describes, um, the third one to 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 have the title of most beautiful woman in the world, um, is the English girl who is told that she's perfect and realizes that she's perfect, and then gets worried about it and ceases to be perfect, right? Um, so Thomas, that goes even one step further to say that the you know her perfection in fact undermines destroys her happiness, right? Um, so it would seem to go even 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 further from that. Dominic uh, says, you know, Buttercup too will grow old, fat, and die. Uh, you know, yeah. I mean, this this is the. Uh, it's one of the things that uh, fairy tales rather famously don't address is what uh, what's the middle aged married life of the gorgeous young heroines of the fairy tales like, right? Um, it's famously, that's one of the things fairy tales don't address. And here we have that not only addressed, but foregrounded. I mean, it's all we're talking about um, for the first like couple pages of the story. 
Adela Terrell of Sussex. Thank you, Sarah Powell. That is indeed um, the one I was talking about. Um, um, yes, and so it suggests, as Thomas says, that Buttercup's beauty is not necessarily going to make her happy. Um, it may attract psychos like Humperdinck, for example. Um, yes, yes. Um, yeah, as Philip points out, this is after Sussex, but before Europe. Um, true, very true. So, um, therefore, it would seem, if we're reading this properly, that Morgan Stern is setting out to undermine the whole, not just this particular story, right? Not just these particular characters. It's not just that he's satirizing Wesley and Buttercup, the two of the greatest heroes of Florinis, you know, Florinis national history, but rather he is calling into question at the very beginning, inviting us to laugh at the entire sort of fairy tale structure, the entire sort of fairy tale premise, really. Um, that seems to me, um, um, uh, that seems to me entirely uh, plausible. I mean, that seems like a good way uh, to read this opening business. Um, notice when we get to Buttercup, um, we get similar kind of language on a couple occasions. Um, Curtsy, dear, Buttercup's mother whispered. Buttercup did her best, and the Count could not stop looking at her. Understand now, she was barely rated in the top twenty. Her hair was uncombed, unclean, her age was just seventeen, so there was still in occasional places the remains of baby fat. Nothing had been done to the child. Nothing was really there but potential. But the Count could still not rip his eyes away. One of the things I would describe is this, this imposes a critical distance. And I mean critical in the sense of inviting us to become critics. Right? Um, this is the opposite of letting us be swept away by the story. Right? Um, we are not being invited ourselves you know, sort of to fall in love with the fairy tale heroine. Right? We're not... Rather than getting a paragraph about um... Buttercup's beauty, and just you know, you look at the frame, you know, the the sentences that frame that central paragraph in this passage, and the count could not stop looking at her, but the count still could not rip his eyes away. Right? Give those two lines and ask what paragraph goes in the middle. Right? You would think like a description, you know, maybe uh, here I'm thinking of Chaucer now, uh, you know, since I was prompted to think of Chaucer earlier today, maybe one of those. Uh, stock beautiful lady descriptions that we get in medieval literature that goes like top to toe, just cry, you know, the kind of thing that uh, Shakespeare was making fun of in his sonnet, you know, my mistress eyes are nothing like the sun, that that kind of thing. So like, oh, you know, her her hair was uh, was like this. You know, let's 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 string together a whole bunch of similes, right, to try to describe how perfect and wonderful all of her features are and everything. That's the kind of thing that. Um, uh, that we might expect, maybe, in that paragraph, but instead we don't get that. Instead, we get the same kind of thing that is the classification of her beauty, but in this very clinical sense, right? Which 
is, I think, very emotionally detached from the situation, right? There's nothing to invest in in Buttercup here. We're being asked to, um, uh, you know, sort of note all of her flaws here. In fact, it does the opposite of those traditional descriptions, right? Instead of pointing to, um, you know, the uh, Carita, exactly as you point out, her milk-white skin, her golden hair, her rose lips, uh, her dainty ankles. Instead, it catalogs her flaws. Her hair's uncombed and dirty. She's got some baby fat. Um, it's the anti-beautiful lady description, really. Um... Kay says, for the frame story Child Goldman, okay, somehow the fairy tale ideals survived the relentless satirizing, and the adult narrator seems still to be haunted by those ideals in the light of his own wrecked marriage. Does he hate the ideals or love them? Kay, that's a really good question, and it's one of the things that I have the hardest time resolving in this. It's... One of the things that in the end I don't think the book does that successfully is bring these things together. Um, In the end, I find the only way that I can read it that holds together um, the only way that I can read it that keeps me from saying it just doesn't work is to have the narrator Goldman be a complete doofus, right? Um, wrong about Morgenstern in his youth, mistaken, thinking that Morgenstern was an awesome writer who wrote this fantastic story of love and adventure, and then when he's an adult going to Morgenstern and finding that not only is he a bad writer, but the story, even the good parts, good parts of the story, don't contain what he found in it when he was a kid. And doesn't even seem to acknowledge that. Um, that he himself doesn't even seem to understand or, or parse how satirical the whole thing is. Um, but like I said, I'm not sure I myself less than 100% sure that it is really successful in the end Um, but um, yeah, Lynn says uh, it goes back and forth between the wistful child and the adult who has learned that life isn't fair but still wishes that it were Yes, so where is he, exactly? And where are we supposed to be? Um, Michael thinks that we're absolutely invited to make fun of Goldman the narrator, um, that the whole description of Goldman the narrator is comical. Um, I'd like to think so. Um, that is, I hope it is. 
I really hope that Goldman the writer intended the depiction of Goldman the narrator to be thoroughly comical. Um, if he didn't, it's intolerable. Uh, but it, it's uh, that is especially the long introduction. Um, uh, I mean, I have to admit, reading through the book, I mean, it's funny. You know, I'm kind of coming to this book. I mean, I'm wanting to now go out further levels of like comparing my coming to the book from loving the film and discovering what's really there in the book, being like him now wanting to excise bits out of Morgenstern and everything. But um, had I not been coming to this book from the film, I'm not sure I'd have made it through the introduction. Like by the time we got to like the description of the dinner conversation between himself and his wife and their son, Jason, uh, you know, and like, I mean, by the time we got there, I would have been done. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not, I, I was not enjoying the book at that point. It helps me a great deal to think of that, all of that as a joke, that we're supposed to be laughing at Golden the Narrator all the way through. I have a hard time doing so all the way through. Um, I'm not sure it's absolutely consistent. But, um, anyway, but I do still like the idea. Um, anyway, um, Lynn says, what makes you think we aren't supposed to be laughing at the narrative? It's so freaking sad sometimes. I mean, it's oh, it's just awful. Um, uh, but I find it... I found too much pathos to be perfectly comfortable laughing at him all the time. Um, anyway... Anyway, um, but I said I like it better if I try harder to laugh at him all the way through. But anyway, um, you'll notice I've not taken a whole lot of passages out of the introduction because I don't want to spend too much time talking about it. Um, I, if I were to publish my own good parts abridgment of the novel version of uh, The Princess Bride, I would, I, would, I would definitely excise some bits of the introduction. Um, Let's uh, let's say uh, you're going to be shocked to hear me say that I'm not going to get through 100% of the passages I had planned for today, uh, but that's okay. I want to get through uh, at least a couple more. That is Buttercup's declaration of love for Wesley. Um. Okay. I love you, Buttercup said. I know this must come as something of a surprise, since all I've ever done is scorn you and degrade you and taunt you, but I have loved you for several hours now, and every second more. I thought an hour ago that I loved you more than any woman has ever loved a man, but a half hour after that, I knew that what I felt before was nothing compared to what I felt then. But ten minutes after that, I understood that my previous love was a puddle compared to the high seas before a storm. Your eyes are like that, did you know? Well, they are. How many minutes ago was I? Twenty? Had I brought my feelings up to then? It doesn't matter. 
Well, let's let's just continue. I love you so much more now than 20 minutes ago that there cannot be comparison. I love you so much more now than when you opened your hovel door. There cannot be comparison. There is no room in my body for anything but you. My arms love you. My ears adore you. My knees shake with blind affection. My mind begs you to ask it for something so it can obey. Do you want me to follow you for the rest of your days? I will do that. Do you want me to crawl? I will crawl. I will be quiet for you or sing for you. If you, or if you are hungry, let me bring you food. Or if you have thirst and nothing will quench it but Arabian wine, I will go to Araby, even though it is across the world, and bring a bottle back for your lunch. Anything there is that I can do for you, I will do for you. Anything there is that I cannot do, I will learn to do. Thus, Buttercup declares her love uh, for Wesley. Um, Michael says, It's like Romeo and Juliet, two teenagers who think they know love, but really are idiots. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Nancy says, I can imagine Goldman the narrator thinking that this is good stuff, even though we readers look at it and it's ridiculous. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Lynn says, It sounds like her 16 year old daughter. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Mary Rose says it doesn't put love in a flattering light. Um, I, I, yeah, that's to me a really interesting question here. How broad is the, is the, I mean, again, it's, Buttercup doesn't come across really well here, as Buttercup doesn't come across really well almost anywhere, but, um, but again, that's you know that we can see, I and mean, if we sort of accept that as part of Morgan Stern's satire, uh, remember, even according to Goldman, the narrator's theory, that's not really what this is. Um, um, what what you know what 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 he's he's really interested in. He's not really interested in Buttercup, um, but. Uh, Are we to take this as a satire of love? Let me ask this question more directly. What's the premise of the joke here? Is the joke here that this is a 17-year-old girl who doesn't understand what love really is? Or is this a send-up of the whole idea of true love? <laughs> Carita, I did not think about that comparison. Carita says that uh, <laughs> that Buttercup is just like Rouseby Woof, glorying in a basement. Um, yes, yes. Um, uh, boasting about how uh, he shall, Rouseby Woof shall grovel before uh, the Queen of Dogs. Um, the dog, the, that, that's very good. That's very good. Um, a couple people, um, are suggesting, this is of course a parody of the whole love at first sight thing, right? 
Um, and you can see that parody working in a couple ways. On the one hand, you know, all this emphasis about, like, I love you so much more now than 20 minutes ago that there cannot be comparison, right, as being a sort of a send-up of the idea of, like, and all of a sudden true love has come upon me like a wave, um, you know, that we get in fairy tales. But, of course, there's sort of the second layer of joke there, right? She didn't just meet him at a ball. She's been living in the same property with him for a long time, right? She's been interacting uh, with him for for years, right? So uh, it's it's uh, it's it's in that sense a sort of a double um, um, a double stand up of it. Now Rachel makes an interesting point. Rachel Draper says her statements seem to reflect what Wesley's actual actions are. They both seem to have the same definition of love. Um, yes, yes, and it is interesting, right, that we see a kind of reversal there. She's the one who declares this kind of love, that she will do all of these extreme things. Um, and we see Wesley actually doing some of them, or some things like them, um, uh, later on in the story. So I agree they're sort of operating in the same idiom there. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So, okay, so Morgenstern then is definitely satirizing not only um, uh, not, not only Buttercup and Wesley, but fairy tales as a whole, you know, the, the concept of perfection of feminine beauty, the concept of true love, right? Um... Yeah, good. Kay says what strikes hardest is the duration she describes. She's promising eternal things on the basis of an hour's emotion. Um, yes, yes, that inconsistency, that that discrepancy between the twenty minutes on the one hand and the um, uh, the 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 eternal love um, is uh, it does seem to be where the heart of that contrast is. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, see, yeah, Lynn, I agree. Lynn is saying, you know, of course, to be fair, one does have this experience sometimes, right, where one knows somebody for a really long time, and then suddenly you, you know, your eyes are open and you see someone very differently. Yeah. So it could have been played that way, right? Um, it's not like the only choice is between completely unrealistic fairy tale and satire of that unrealistic fairy tale, right? But Morgenstern's not gone there, right? The Morgenstern, which Goldman, the writer, has given us, hasn't hasn't gone there. Um, but what does Goldman, the narrator, think about that? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Sarah Powell says that she's still in the camp that Morgenstern is just a bad writer, and that the satire is the author's. Um, Sarah, I think that this is a defensible position. I'm not sure I can completely believe it, but I think it's defensible. Um, and that is to say, to say Morgenstern isn't criticizing true love here. Rather, this is Morgenstern's attempt to write the ultimate true love declaration. 
he's just so bad at it that it sounds like satire. Or, or you know, as you say, this is the satire of Goldman the writer, so it's Goldman the writer winking at us, not, not, um, not Morgenstern winking at us. That, I think, as I said, I, I think that that's a defensible position. Be interested to see um, what we continue to think as we look through this story. Um, do we feel that we should really be coming down on one side or the other of that? You know, do we get some sort of cumulative um, uh, building towards that? Um, anyway, we'll come back to this. We're going to look at um, a couple more passages here with uh, with Humperdinck uh, in chapters two and three. We're going to we're going to read the next uh, two chapters uh, for next time, um, chapters four and five. Uh, and we'll continue to trace these things, try to try to piece out these. Uh, I, I wanted to thank everybody, not just for coming, um, but you guys have helped me a lot uh, during this class in, uh, in our understanding of this story. Um, I have to say, I, I'm already enjoying this book more now after talking with you guys for the last couple hours than I was before. Um, so you've been helping me tremendously. And uh, I, I look forward to our, our further conversations as we continue to try to piece this stuff out. Um, don't forget, this Friday afternoon, 12.30 p.m., is uh, my Lord of the Rings online stream. Um, uh, and uh, the Silmarillion Seminar... The, not the Silmarillion Seminar. Silmarillion Film Project, coming up soon. Uh, so thanks very much, everybody. Good night. See you next week.